HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Jeff gordon staff writer for the New York Times Dining Section. Thank you for being on. Thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah. It's a cool scene out here. It's not I, too bad. I feel bad if there are people listening who are expecting Jeff Gordon, <laughs> the race car driver. Yeah, accidentally tweeted to him this morning. Uh, but maybe another time we'll talk about NASCAR and food, unless you have No, let's anything just talk about NASCAR. Yeah. Why not? That's fine. Yeah. I know nothing about it. Yeah, you but. just go round and round and round <laughs> as fast as you can. But That describes my career. <laughs> well... The wheels, how they start spinning for you. You grew up um, initially on the East Coast, moved to the West, came back to the East. Yes, we moved around a lot in my family. Um, and I have moved around a lot in terms of the beats I cover in journalism. I've covered politics. I've covered film, um, music, um, and all sorts of things. When I was at Details Magazine, I was sort of a generalist there. So I've hopped all over the place and... Uh, have landed in the food beat now, which is a thrill. Um, but I think part of that came about because, like, for instance, when I was at Details Magazine, um, my editor for a time was the great Pete Wells, who later became my editor at the New York Times and is now the restaurant critic for the New York Times. He's an amazing editor and a, and a good friend. And um, I think he noticed when I was at Details that I would go on reporting trips. And, um, like, for, at one point I went to Memphis... And uh, I was writing about Harold Ford Jr., the um, politician from Tennessee. And uh, I was doing a profile of him, and I would call Pete to just give him updates on how the story was going. 
and, and I'd be like, oh my God, I found this amazing <laughs> barbecue place. You won't believe it. And you know what? Rendezvous is right across the street from my hotel. I'm getting the most amazing food. And he'd be like, uh, Jeff, what's the story <laughs> coming? I'm like, oh, I'm fine. The story's coming fine, but I'm, this is a great food town, Memphis. Or like I went to Utah. I was writing about Warren Jeffs and the polygamist, uh, you know, um, compound in, on, the, on the border of Utah and Arizona. I was writing about these guys called the Lost Boys who were sort of cast out of the community. And um, there was this long drive I made from Salt Lake City down to, uh, you know, southern Utah. And on the way, I, f- I saw these sort of cheese curds that I guess are a specialty of, of rural sections of Utah in the southwest and I called Pete to tell him all about these cheese curds. <laughs> I was so excited. It was like sort of American southwest uh, fresh mozzarella kind of thing. <laughs> and um, I, I guess maybe over the years Pete took note in part that I um, always seem to get very excited about local restaurants and local food products and uh, that was always sort of a secret passion of mine. Yeah, but right before the show we, we were kind of chatting about writers um and genres you know a food writer doesn't have to come from a food background i mean you you fell into this as as you're saying from politics music film um you look at the people that you've interviewed in the past uh you know however many years from keanu reeves who you did drive around looking for a sandwich uh, yes. with um, looking for a sandwich <laughs> but Wow, I, I only wish you can do a, a Keanu Reeves. I can Reeves. do whatever you want. <laughs> Jack, we're going to have to get a clip <laughs> of that. <laughs> um, Keanu Reeves, uh, Willie Nelson, uh, Anthony Bourdain, Kevin Bacon I threw in there for a food person just because have, of his last yeah. name, uh, Gabrielle Hamilton, but also Tom Cruise, Christopher Walken, Charlie Watts, uh, you know, Philip Glass. That There's a spectrum of personalities that you've you know, interviewed and there must be an approach in how you deal with a person, be it a food celebrity or a celebrity, um, you know, a rapport that you gain to talk to them that doesn't have to come from a food background. Yeah. Well, I think ultimately I'm just a writer. I'm just a culture writer and I'm interested mostly in creative people. I'm interested in their process. I'm interested in their personalities and what drives them. Um, and frankly, the crazier the better sometimes <laughs> i mean like i like when they're i respect that and love that frankly when they're sort of wild and unfiltered and real um i mean i spent a, a whole day driving around nashville and way into the night drinking around nashville with lucinda williams the great singer songwriter that was for entertainment weekly years ago and that was one, just one of the best you know days of my life it was a blast to be to be hanging out with her and finding out what makes her tick um and so i think i was in part drawn to the food beat and it's something pete wells and i discussed when when the opportunity sort of developed um it was this idea of coming to the times in part as part of the beat to capture some of these personalities um in the same way that i had perhaps tried to capture the personalities of, of musicians filmmakers actors politicians um people like gabriel hamilton seamus mullen uh wiley dufresne Todd English, like him or not, he's a fascinating personality. Um, and uh, you know, you and I were talking before I went on the air here. It, it's intriguing because something has shifted in um, sort of mainstream celebrity culture. If you were to look at some of my heroes as writers, like Tom Wolfe, Gay Talese, in the '60s and '70s, they would get tons of access with people like Muhammad Ali, Phil Spector. Um, major forces in the culture would sort of open up their lives to these writers and. And uh, that doesn't happen so much anymore. It really got dialed back in the, in the celebrity world, in the film world, in the music world. So um, that became increasingly 
a source of frustration for me as a writer. Um, you can still, I believe, write a revealing piece with somewhat limited access, but um, there's, not, there's no substitute for actually spending a lot of time yeah. with someone and, and hanging out with them. I mean, when I first, Gabrielle Hamilton was one of the first profiles I did for the New York Times dining section when I, when I came on board. And, uh, you know, we spent, we spent like all day of Valentine's Day together. She was actually working in the kitchen on Valentine's Day. I thought that was a perfect choice because that's a big restaurant night, of course, and also symbolically interesting. And, uh, you know, we were just hanging out in the kitchen and downstairs. If you've been to Prune, there's a, a kitchen sort of under the restaurant as well. Um, and she's a, she's a very genuine upfront, vibrant, uh, unfiltered person. So it was, a, it was a thrill to be able to experience that and see, you know, what her cooking's about, what her writing's about. Um, Do you think, I mean, it's pardoned due to it being, well, not a servile in the industry, but something that people are more willing to allow uh, another person to assimilate into. Um, because with a celebrity, like you're saying, Tom Wolf, when he was interviewing people, he almost felt embedded. Uh, it, it's almost hard as a reporter or as a writer these days to feel embedded rather than feel like this, uh, you know, positron, this this thing other than... Yeah, this widget. Yeah. You're just part of the, yeah, you're this cog in the celebrity machine. And yeah, and I... I decline yeah. to participate in that yeah. if I can. Um, I think the chefs, in a way, didn't get the memo yet. I mean, you know, it's like, <laughs> they're still, it's fairly uncontrolled world, um, and they're proud of the uh, realities of their personalities, I guess. They're, it's not like they're trying to hide something. Um, there's a certain pirate-like wildness that's actually valued and respected in that world um there's this you know kind of roguish rock and roll energy you'll see with a lot of chefs and so um that's almost part of the brand you know but um i don't know it, they they don't i don't know they seem pretty i i i people ask me how I, this is a strange territory for me because i don't i don't know how to describe it but people say how do you get people to talk to you and open up to you and people do seem to open up to me, but I, I don't quite uh, know why that happens. Yeah. I listen. I try to listen. It's actually easier for me to listen to you than to talk like this, as you probably <laughs> noticed. It's difficult for me to explain it. I just kind of sit and listen and don't really pass judgment one way or another. I'm just there to, well, I mean, to hear their perspective. An example is Mike Gino, who's been on this show, who does those amazing cheese paintings, told me to contact you to have you out as a guest. That um, was nice. Because it felt so conversational as i tried to do with my guests um and you were saying that you know hours into meeting him he asked when the interview yeah start. <laughs> that happens a lot yeah. in my interviews people will say um are we gonna start the interview at some point i'm like oh dude we've been doing the interview yeah. for a couple hours now <laughs> and i don't mean that in the sense of deception at all it's not i mean i'm obviously writing down notes and sometimes taping that part of the conversation if it's appropriate for the situation so there's no um uh, there's no funny business going on. There, it's clear that I'm doing the interview. I just mean that the tone is tends to be fairly loose and casual. I don't tend to come with prepared questions written down. Strangely enough, I will often write them down for myself ahead of time, but then almost kind of internalize them and put them, put them in my pocket and not turn to them unless I'm desperate. Yeah. <laughs> unless we hit some real dry patch and I don't know what to ask. As you see, I have um, a flow map in front of me. Yeah, much. sometimes yeah. it's important because, you well, on the air, particularly, you know, you can blank out. You know, I've been on the air and situations where you you just do that <laughs> and that's scary so but um i mean that's another advantage of perhaps getting a whole day with someone you know you can just let it flow and and talk and uh it seems more natural that way 
So Gabrielle Hamilton, you had a whole bunch of time with. Yeah. Um, with the New York Times, I mean, you've profiled cooking with Jacques Torres, you know, techniques. Jacques Pepin. Jacques Pepin, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Jacques many, Torres would be great, Too though. many Jacques in this world. Yeah. In, in the no, there's industry. never too many Jacques. More Jacques, please. <laughs> More Jacques. I, I'd love for you to do that. That was me sipping my cocktail. <laughs> um, Molly Birnbaum and her sense of smell. Yes. Um, who's also been on the show, and she, she's a wonderful story. Um there's been uh, affinage at Murray's Cheese Caves, uh, eating at that, you know, Buddhist monastery. Oh yeah, yeah, which was a wonderful. Yeah, the mindful eating story. I got to tell you, Michael, that was that's a that was a fascinating experience. I've sort of um, gone through phases of Buddhism myself. I've been interested in it and have practiced meditation at different times in my life. Not particularly right now. I'm too <laughs> too busy. It's probably <laughs> the perfect time to do it, but I'm just too swamped usually. Um, but. Uh, it, during that in my life you know while going through that in my life I began to hear about this practice of mindful eating which is often taught as a form of meditation where they'll put like you know the teacher will put like three raisins in front of you and you'll have 20 minutes or 40 minutes to just savor those raisins or blueberries or something and uh, when I got hired you know to become part of the dining team at the times I thought that would be an interesting story and it turns out it's much richer than I expected um, there's a whole movement of mindful eating, and it's studied at Harvard, and it's been adopted by um, the team at Google. Uh, so I went up to, um, I think it's called Blue, Blue Cliff Monastery up in, uh, is that, do I have that right, in Pinecrest, New York? I may, I may not have remembered that exactly right, but I spent the day you know, with the monks there and, and um, lay people who had shown up to practice to experience mindful eating. It is incredibly hard, by the way. Like, you think you can eat slow? Yeah. It is not easy, dude. Well, I mean, even chewing a hundred times, like they tell you, is oh, nearly You impossible. can't do a hundred no. times. It just evaporates. Yeah. But beyond that, like, I would watch the monks, and they were they were um, very delicate in, in terms of, like, taking... They would take a spoonful of soup and then put the spoon down and just sort of sit there and savor that spoonful of soup for a while and wait a while before they picked up the spoon. I mean, I, just physically, I couldn't do that. I was yeah. so used to shoveling it in. <laughs> well, I mean, watch somebody when they eat next, how often they actually put down their silverware, because sometimes it's it's nil. I mean... Yeah, I don't think I ever do. No, no. You might need it as a weapon, you know. Like, <laughs> I, may, I might actually use it to stab other better. hands that are trying to get my food. I mean, that's what a, a hog I am. Yeah. But um, I, I, that story really struck a nerve, though, I have to say. I had no... I did not anticipate that at all. It was a huge hit with our readers, and I got a lot of feedback from readers about it, which is really gratifying. I have to say, I mean, I love doing all the different kinds of stories that I've been lucky enough to do, but it's it's particularly gratifying when readers say, look, this changed my life. It changed my outlook on food. Well, also when there's a personal attachment to it. Um, I mean, not to say that you don't have some kind of uh, soul mate-ness with Keanu Reeves, but... Oh, no, I we mean, do. <laughs> Oh, now you do. <laughs> I'm glad you picked up on yeah, that. Yeah. We're but, blood brothers. But uh, having a personal attachment, as you did with this, uh, you know, mindful eating story, you also did with Budapesto. I mean, which was a small little pesto company uh, near where you live, you know, up in Westchester. And I think having some kind of inherent care about, you know, a subject or a product uh, means that much more when you write about it. Yeah, well, yeah, that's a good question. You know, sometimes I'll... I'll hear from editor. I, I seem to have some sort of knack for finding ideas. I just seem to find ideas constantly, almost too many, like more stories than I, I am able to to handle. Um, and uh, I think that's true of a lot of 
writers at the times that I've noticed. I mean, you have to be productive and you have to find stories to tell. And I'm actually sort of lapped constantly by my neighbors in the office who are always finding great things. But sometimes just finding the secret to it is just being alert, you know, just keeping your eyes and ears open. And in the case of Budapesto, I live up on the Hudson River and um, Gregor and Maria who make the pesto, it's really just Maria makes the pesto and Gregor helps sell it. Um, they live about an hour and a half north of me and the, their product, Budapesto, is often at farmer's markets I go to. And I've actually been eating it for about uh, 10 years now, I think. And I, I just the best pesto I've ever had. And so again, it's like, hey, I wonder, now that I'm writing about food full time, I wonder what goes into it. I wonder what makes it so good. I wonder what the story is of this couple. My editor loved the idea. I said, go up and check it out you know so um i think you and i were talking about in here at roberta's that gregor and maria maybe were not completely <laughs> prepared for the onslaught of international orders of budapesto after that story came out and the impact of the times is immense i have to say yeah it's it's humbling you you know it really is a an incredible force in in the world um so so when you write about one of these things, I mean, pe- people find out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, even with Mike Gino, uh, after you wrote that piece in the Times about him, I contacted him directly. He said, give me a week. Yeah. And in a week, he said, give me another week. And then three weeks later, he finally said, okay, I'm going to need a couple months for this, but I'll get back to you <laughs> soon. But yeah, it, it must feel like a, a really earnest weight that you carry around to you know, pick a subject, write about it knowingly that when it goes to print, it could change your lives. It should change your lives. Well, and that, yeah, there, there are a lot of factors like that. There's also the scrutiny that's brought to bear on it. The, the readers really do parse each story with a fine-tooth comb, <laughs> and you'll hear from them if they disagree with something. So the scrutiny, the impact, the, the amount of care that's put into it uh, from editors and copy editors, um, it's a very careful enterprise. I mean that in the best sense of the word. It's, um, it's, there, it's a meticulous, you know, endeavor. So... Yeah. Um, that's actually where I, I'll, I'll write a story sometimes very quickly in terms of actual, the actual prose, but then spend quite a bit of time on fact-checking, getting back to people I interviewed, making sure I have the data right. Yeah. Um, so. Well, I mean, as, as good as your intentions c- can be, you know, the scrutiny can come from other places. Uh, Emilio's Balado, a wonderful Italian place on Halston Street that's been there for years that I believe really elevated old-school Italian before, at you know, by an old-school Italian um, before... Parm and Teresi and all that. Yeah, happened. it's like the it's the unreconstructed Parm. Yeah, it's like they're doing the same kind of food, like you know veal Parm and chicken Parm and stuff, but not in any sort of meta way. Yeah, it's just it's just what they do. But you the wrote, old school way. You wrote about it as a phenomenon, as a place where people went, celebrities went, and yeah. Well, the story with the Emilio's Bellato article is is that I when I was at Details Magazine and I, I interviewed Billy Joel for something they they call wise guy or they used to call it a de- I think they still do it details and it was just a Q&A with a celebrity and uh, cheesily I suppose I mean I asked Billy Joel hey you wrote scenes from an Italian restaurant what's your favorite <laughs> Italian restaurant <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing do you I really that. drink a bottle of red yeah, and a bottle, bottle of white bottle of white maybe just drinks rosé but yeah, I don't know if I even intended to run that. I just kind of was curious. I actually just wanted to know. And he said, I love Emilio, this place called Emilio's Bellato, down, you know, down around Soho, Little Italy, Ariana. I'd never heard of it. You know, I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm thinking he's going to name uh, Michael White Restaurant or Scarpetta or, um, you know, Esca. Who knows? Mario Batali Restaurant. He, Emilio's Bellato? 
you know, like I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> I really didn't know. So my friend Ian and I, after the Q&A came out, we went down there to check it out. And it turns out, first of all, the food was way better than I had expected. I mean, for sort of old school red sauce joint, it was, it was really well executed. And then there's pictures of, now, I mean, I know you can go to a lot of pizza places and there's pictures of celebrities who visited. And, but this was different. This was like, we started, I started talking to Emilio Vitolo, who's the owner and chef there, and he's saying, oh, you know, Brad Pitt was in here the other night, and, uh, you know, uh, Rihanna, and I, I was like, and I, I went back a few times and got to know him a little bit. This is long before I went to the Times, and um, it turned out that, you know, Bowie had a table in the back and would sit there from time to time, and, and not in any sense of you know, uh, some effort to get an item in page six. This was the opposite. This was like the neighborhood restaurant where a lot of, particularly music stars, would congregate. Not even congregate, go get dinner, really, at uh, on certain evenings. And I thought that was an interesting phenomenon, so I wrote about that. And, um, wow, like, I mean, then I, I, I mean, I heard there was, like, a line around the block, literally, for, like, <laughs> days and days. I mean, you don't anticipate that, you know. So it was an interesting New York story. I thought it was the kind of thing that, you know, Calvin Trillin or, or Jimmy Breslin or somebody would find the story and want to tell the story. To me, that's all it was. It was just an interesting New York story. Um, so, and still, you know, but uh, then you hear from people like, well, I tried the fresh mozzarella. I didn't think it was all that. And you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, well, we're going to take a quick break. And oh, okay. Maybe we'll come back and find out some other non hot celebrity spots that you've heard of. <laughs> You've been okay. listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will too, and I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm here with Jeff Gordonier of the New York Times Dining Section. We were just talking about non-hot celebrity spots. Um, talking to non-hot, <laughs> not non-hot. You know, <laughs> it's paid, a niche. Paid, you know, like fifty-six of a, of the post. I mean, are there other places that you've been told by celebrities uh, that they go to that you'd be like, really, that little hole in the wall? Well, they are human beings. Yeah. So do, you know, they. You know, I don't. I don't talk to that many celebrities frankly i mean they don't just call me and tell yeah. me that much <laughs> <laughs> i just live in the suburbs so you know they're not sort of i'm not rubbing elbows with them. but I, I you know i did i did do a story at one point on a place called gradiska on the uh, uh well let's see it's like sort of the mid village it's on 13th street and uh 
that was uh, it turns out Sarah Jessica Parker Sarah Jessica Parker goes there quite a bit but that was almost the ancillary to the story the, the piece was really about um, Massimo the guy who owns it uh, hired a bunch of different chefs over the years to try to essentially replicate the cuisine that he grew up with in Bologna in, in Italy where he grew up and uh, you know I'm sure they did a fine job but he wasn't quite right for Massimo so Massimo finally decided the only answer was to fly his mother <laughs> in his mother Katerina from Bologna itself and so on s- certain parts in the during certain parts of the month um, Katerina is actually in the restaurant in Kradiska you walk in and she's at this table making the fresh pasta right there um and, I, you know, again, it was like another New York story that hadn't been told. I just thought it was a fascinating story. Um, heard about it from, like, friend of a friend and decided to drop by. And there she was, you know, in her little plastic shoes, standing <laughs> up at this table. I was like, I can't believe it. The guy flies his mother in from Italy to make the pasta. So, you know, it's just a fun little story. But that was really popular. You know, yeah. People love stories about pasta and, mo- and moms, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I don't even know how to segue out of that, but yeah, I was going <laughs> to. Thanks very much. Yeah, we're out of here. Um, but I want to ask you about some of your favorite New York restaurants. Oh man, wow. Well, it, I don't know. That's it, I don't even know where to start. I mean, just recently, I mean, I've been to Atera, Mission Chinese Food, Pak Pak, Reynard out in Williamsburg. Um, I love Scarpetta. I love Tertulia. I love Prune. Um, Danji, the bulgogi sliders at Danji are incredible. I mean, I don't, it's weird for me to go on and like endorse places. So I don't really. Yeah. I mean, I eat a lot. I love to go out as much as I can. We don't have. I don't have like an unlimited budget in that regard. But um, uh, WD fifty is fascinating. I mean, it's it's a great city for eating. Roberta's here. I mean, I, I I'm feel very fortunate in that regard. I mean, you had asked about sort of my covering music and movies before, and now covering food. One thing that's cool about it is that. A lot of the, you know, the, t- the rising star chefs are, in a sense, sort of like rock stars. That point can be belabored and become sort of tiresome after a while. But what they make um, is, to me, like, in some ways, as exciting as rock and roll was in the 60s and 70s, you know? It's just so exciting to go to a restaurant and try all these new things and just feel like you're, your mind's being blown. Well, um, then let's talk about WD-50 and 11 Madison Park. Yeah. Because you've recently written about both of those new revamped menu changes. Yeah, well, the stakes are always, you know, rising um, in the gastronomic world these days. Um, in the case of 11 Madison Park, those guys are aiming high. Um, that was we, we ran that as the front page story of, um, about 10 days ago. Um, 11 Madison Park is a four-star restaurant, four stars from the New York Times, three from Michelin. Um universally acclaimed as one of the best restaurants in the world and they're changing up their game um will gadara the uh, you know will gadara the general manager and, and daniel hum the chef are hugely inspired by miles davis uh, miles davis the jazz titan is seen as they, they see him as the muse of the restaurant and his um sort of career mission of constant creative reinvention is something they've they've truly internalized daniel and and will and they 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 really do not want to rest on their laurels. They want to keep changing it up. I mean, they just changed it up two years ago, and, and then they're changing it up again in, in a more dramatic way. Um, that story, it was interesting. There were, there, there were some negative responses to the elements of showmanship that they're bringing into it. I noticed this in comments on the Times site and stuff. Um, 
you know, I'm I'm objectively looking at this as a reporter. I will say that I've seen some of the tricks and uh, and uh, dishes they're planning to incorporate and introduce, and you know, there's some cool stuff. Yeah. So I don't know that people should pass judgment quite so quickly until they see it. Um, I mean, these guys know what they're doing. So uh, uh, in the case of uh, Wiley Dufresne at, at WD50, um, he did a very dramatic thing. He's he's you know. He sort of obliterated all the old dishes from the menu, um, including his sort of iconic uh, deconstructed Eggs Benedict dish, and created a whole new, you know, multi-course tasting menu, um, which is pricier. His food is is in many ways sort of challenging to some people. It's it's seen as as weird, you know. It sort of uh, forges new neural pathways. So um, again, he sort of upped the stakes by doing this. Uh, and those are the stories. I mean, I got to tell you, those are the stories I'm drawn to because there's drama. I mean, I'm I'm just a writer. I'm just a reporter, and I'm interested when there's conflict and drama and risk. And I love that these guys are taking risks. I mean, I think they're fascinating people, fascinating creators, and um, and bold. You know, and that's what we want to see. We don't want to see people just, you know, doing the same old thing. Forever. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's let's cool. Talk about, it's what makes the beat exciting. Yeah. Well, let's talk about people that forge that path. That of this beat you know uh, you mentioned Calvin Trill um, oh yeah you mentioned writers that took the risk Jonathan Gold was a music well, writer Jonathan know? Gold I gotta tell you you asked me like what writers and, and I can mention a ton you know from M- MFK Fisher on but like to me Jonathan Gold was hugely influ- influential on my life because I, I more or less grew up in Los Angeles and I used to read him about food and about music when I was younger and I just thought he was the greatest writer I'd ever encountered and I still do to the point where I saw him at the James Beard Awards and was too nervous to introduce <laughs> myself at 45 I just I um, I, I do kind of revere him and I think he's, he's an immense important cultural figure and, and uh, incredible writer and everybody should seek out his stuff um, but oddly enough these days I don't I don't read I don't read that much fiction or that much Nonfiction prose. I read gobs and gobs of poetry, as my friends yeah. will tell you. So I could I could direct you to all sorts of poems about food. Yeah, I'd and, love to hear your sources. I mean, you've written for the po- Poetry Foundation. Yeah, uh, I mean, you you wrote a novel which we're not going to gloss over, but we're at least going to mention. Oh yeah, yeah, I wrote a no. We can gloss over. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> Generational manifesto. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but uh, I you know actually there's a poet named Kevin Young who's. Uh, Roughly in my age range, and um, I, I believe he's a professor at Emory, and he has I'm blanking on the title right now, but he has an anthology of food poems coming out this fall. You should have him on the air. Actually, he's a great, great poet and and uh, and a great scholar. And um, God, I don't even know where to start. I mean, I'll start with this: William Matthews onions it's a poem called onions google the name william matthews onions you find it on various sites i'm sure it's just a beautiful i mean to me poets in some ways get at the essence of what the eating experience is about um so uh, i find myself i you know we put together this uh list uh, this sort of compilation of links every day at diner's journal called just what we're reading and I'm the guy who's always slipping in poems. Like I have, if you look on Diner's Journal today, I have one from W. S. Merwin, the poet about cherries. It's just something I found googling around, and uh, you know, it's kind of my little act of literary subversion to slip a poem in there. <laughs> uh, who was that poet that wrote on a napkin about eating the peach? 
um, William Carlos Williams? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, that's just incredible. I, I ate the plums in the icebox. They're so delicious yeah. and so cold. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that gets it just at the essence of what food's about. Yeah. Know? Well, I mean, because not that I have a hard time, but people that read food blogs or read, you know, like very media savvy food press um, are forgetting that writing itself has technique and has style like food does. And to just come out of nowhere and think you're creating something, you know, uh, worthy or, you know, well, I don't know. I don't archival. know that, I don't know that I'm going to, I don't know that I'll slag on blogs or something. I actually think that a lot of blogs, not just food blogs have, have been almost a revolutionary force in American prose. Like I think the writers at Gawker are kind of you know wildly brilliant. Yeah. In many, I, I, I they do something I can't do, and there's a there's an acerbic, um, thrilling kind of humor on on so many of those sites that you know I'm just not capable of. I mean, I actually think there's been wave after wave of different kind of gonzo revolutions in American prose. The new journalists are sort of what I look back to over and over. Maybe that's a cliche, but that's what, I can't help it. I was smitten with them, you know, when I was younger, and and uh, you know Hunter Thompson, Tom Wolfe, Joan Didion, John McPhee, Gay Talese, um, Terry Southern. Those people have all been a huge influence on my life, and I think they sort of changed the way a lot of people practice journalism. But I, I think we're seeing a new wave. We've seen a new wave over the last decade or so with blogs. Um, and I don't just mean the personal ones, but some of these these bigger ones like like Gawker and Eater. Um, I don't always uh, agree with or subscribe to the level of bitterness and bickering that's that's on them. It's maybe just not how I'm wired. Um, I aspire to be more of a gentleman than that. But <laughs> but nevertheless, it's fun to read, and I think I think the writers who work there um, are highly skilled and just you know. So I, I actually read them in awe often. Yeah, I do. I'm being honest. I no, think no, no. Great I, writers. I, I completely agree, and I, I wasn't. <laughs> it's just not what I do, yeah. really. But but like I'm I'm just kind of a traditionalist in a way. Yeah, for better or worse, I can't help it now. So, <laughs> new topics, new things that you're trying to follow. Um, are there subjects that you're hoping to get in the Times? Are there areas or genres of things that you're hoping to research and get more in depth on? Oh, well, I get really superstitious about talking about future stories. Yeah. I have tons in the works right now, and um, I'm just trying to suss out which ones come first. I'm going out west for vacation uh, at some point, and I might do a few, might report a few stories there. I don't know. Um, so uh, I'm not going to tell you. Yeah, no, I love that. <laughs> but, uh, I'll just have to I have just, you back on. What, what people? People are what interest me. You know the people. Like you know, in the midst of risk, in the in the midst of um, being energized creatively, uh, whenever I hear about that, that's what I'm drawn to. That I want to hang out with that person. I want to hang out with those folks, you know, for days and find out what what's going through their mind. Yeah. Um, so I sort of know it when I see it, or like it, it's. Um, you know, like with Budapesto, even it's I, it's like this couple. They live up in this little farmhouse upstate. They make this pesto by hand in these small batches, and they develop this cult following. I just want to know what makes them tick. I want to know what makes that pesto better. I want to know what their relationship is like. Yeah. I want to know how late Maria Gandara has to stay up making it. I'm just I become sort of fixated. This is true of so many reporters I've worked with. They're they're the same. We're sort of obsessives, and we can't help it. 
And as soon as we, we latch on to something like that, it's like we can't let go. Like I just, I was going to go up and learn about the Budapesto people anyway. <laughs> you know what I yeah. Mean? Like, <laughs> let me write the story or don't. I'm still going to go find out. That's so. Um, I mean, while we're sitting here, I'm sort of studying how people are eating and what they're drinking and wondering why they're here at almost four o'clock <laughs> this late lunch. <laughs> I wonder that every Lucky week. Lucky folks, yeah. <laughs> my gosh, what a life. Um, so, you know, you always, I, I, I mean, you're probably this way too. You're always looking for stories. I'm just always looking for stories to a degree that, you know, I'll hop up from the dinner table and go write something down all the time. It yeah. It's like smacks me how often are people telling you oh you should go check out this person you should go check to a point where it's at a fever pitch and you're like stop i have too much in my head i have too much going on being pulled into thousands that's a really good question it is it is kind of difficult to manage sometimes and sometimes the story ideas like i did a story on the zach brown band who's this you know kind of country country rock band that has they travel around with this chef rusty hamlin and they and they they have these kind of amazing southern hoedown feasts for their fans um, out in the parking lot. So I wrote about them last summer, a year ago. And uh, I think I'd first heard about that maybe five or six months before that. But it wasn't quite the right time. I was, I was you know, overwhelmed with other stories I was working on. It took a while. To, mindful eating, I had that idea for probably two or three years. It's, it's sometimes just, you know, you can only do so much. I've got kids. I've got, you know, got other things too. So... Um, I can sort of work on three or four stories at once. I can't really work on 15 yeah. at once. It's just my brain's not at that, you know, it doesn't operate at that level. Um, so, uh, well, that's shop talk, I suppose. Yeah. But. Are you more of a consumer or are you a maker? Like once you learn about Budapesto, it seems like you buy Budapesto. But do you make your own pesto oh, no, in the I light make, of? You no, know, I wouldn't make my own pesto because, I, I mean, nothing beats Budapesto. Yeah. That's, that's just a shameless endorsement. I'm yeah. sorry. I mean, it doesn't even make sense how good it is. I don't understand what they're <laughs> I mean, I do understand because now I visited them and got a got a you know bird's eye view of it, and there are certain elemental sim- simple factors that go into play there. But um, no, I cook a lot too. I love cooking. I mean, we made um, you know like Pioneer Woman that, that yeah I, I made her yeah, Reed Drummond uh, yeah yeah I uh, over the weekend made her she had a carnitas recipe that my wife found that was um it but it was beef. I mean when I grew up in L.A. carnitas was really pork. It's you know it's, it's kind of like great mexican barbecue almost well this is with beef you just sort of slather this this beef roast with cumin salt and pepper sear it then you cook it down actually like it's almost like boiling it in chicken broth with all these spices chili powder and stuff i gotta tell you this was amazing it was so delicious and then we uh we um took it to our local like swim club and had a picnic with some friends and you know people sometimes say what what was the best meal you had and i gotta tell you i had zahav out in philadelphia ridiculously good yeah i went there you know. this past year and still can't forget it yeah i, I you know what i mean the, me- the messy bar i think it's called it's like their party feast uh, yeah. that roast lamb they have ridiculously good um the roast chicken of the nomad uh, you know no lie that's yeah. that's del- but in a way you know a great meal ultimately is about being with people you you know not to be all sappy here and you know that sentimental thing but it is about being with people you care about and um, the experience of eating as much as it is the food. So having tacos out on this picnic table of this, you know, Pioneer Woman uh, beef carnitas thing, man, I, I was, it was a good time. Yeah. You know, so um, sometimes it's just that simple. Have you ever thought of trying to amalgam your 
career and invite all the people you profile to one giant dinner and have <laughs> oh, them bring. <laughs> they don't want to hang out with me. <laughs> They well, maybe they want to hang out with each other. You can just be yeah, the surrogate for that true. to happen. Yeah, I can introduce Gabriel Hamilton to Marilyn Manson, <laughs> Keanu Reeves to Tony Bourdain. That'd be a fun party, man. Yeah. No, I mean I've been lucky. I'm not. I'm not going to hide that. You know. I mean, I don't mean lucky in terms of meeting famous people. I don't think that's any better than meeting any kind of person. There, I just love people. But um, there's been a lot of adventure. You know, I've been lucky because there's been a lot of. Um, experience, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I and 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 you know, Keanu Reeves. That was that was interesting because I met Keanu Reeves on the street outside Book Soup and Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, and I was told, you know, he doesn't like doing interviews. It's not gonna probably give you a lot of time, so just be be comfortable with that. He shows up. He's like, "Hey, man, what's up? You know, let's let's buy some books." So we got some books. I mean, he's really smart. I'm not kidding. He's like a big reader, like Updike, Proust, Ginsburg. He's read it quite a bit. We went through Book Soup, and he's like, let's go looking for a sandwich, man. <laughs> I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> I'm driving around L.A. looking for a sandwich with Keanu Reeves. This is listening to Mission of Burma in the car, and, you know, it was fun. Um, I, if you've read the story, you know we never actually found the yeah, sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a bummer. It yeah. yeah, it was kind of waiting for Godot. We we ended up the sandwich place was closed, but you know, and I've never been back. It's called Bay City, Bay City, Bay City's Deli or something like that. I need to. I I even when I was in LA, did not know about that place, which is foolish of me. But yeah. um, apparently, it's an incredible sandwich. <laughs> well, an incredible sandwich. <laughs> the shredded lettuce. Everyone should go uh, to LA to Bay City Deli and have yeah, the that's where the party will yeah. be. We'll have the party there. Sounds good. I'm there, uh, Jeff. Thank you again. Hey, Michael. Thanks a lot. This I was kind of rambling. Yeah. I'm sorry. This will not be the last time you're here. Oh, good. I cool. Can feel I'll be it. back. I can feel All right. It. Thanks for having me. Jeff it's really Cordonier. nice of you. Um, tomorrow, New York Times dining section. We look forward to. Hopefully, uh, I don't have anything in there. <laughs> I wouldn't be here if I did. You need a break anyway. <laughs> Excellent. You've been listening to Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Looking forward to having you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.